the producer was rather a camp American, went up and said, Glad to meet you, Ollie. And Ollie said, threw him over his shoulder and he landed on the settee. And by then, Oliver was eating goldfish from the bowl. Two Oliver Reeds vie for the attentions of the fairer sex, Donald Sutherland purloins the lady loins of 18th century Europe, and Richard Burton has bloody designs for his tsunami of brides, all in this 25th entry in the little black book of Midnight Video with your gigolos. Me, Jim Hall. And me, Phil Walsh. Tonight, one of Britain's most infamous hellraisers gets the opportunity to unleash his inner misanthrope in a 1980 updating of the classic Robert Louis Stevenson novella. Oliver Reed is Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype. In 1976, Donald Sutherland once again finds himself in Venice and meeting with red-jacketed dwarfs, though his quest this time is of a more amorous nature in Fellini's Casanova. And from 1972, another British Hellraiser in action, as Richard Burton plays the titular Lothario who would give Henry VIII a run for his money in the matches and dispatches stakes in Bluebeard. Christmas is lurking just around the corner. It is. Are you ready? Uh, no, not at all. I'm so ill prepared. All I'm thinking of is going to France because we'd go a week before Christmas. So. Right. Is Zeb old enough to really get Christmas? No, not yet. You can get away with not really buying anything then. Mm, yeah, but I mean, fortunately, we're going with all the family there, so they do all get lost in the do the getting. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. Well. It's appropriate, really, with Christmas coming, that tonight's selection of films is kind of like a pantomime season. <laughs> Some famous faces in bizarre dress, and a lot of dames. Yeah, I never thought of that, actually. Yeah, there's a lot of dames. <laughs> <laughs> but also, on that flamboyant front, I watched a couple of music documentaries yesterday Ooh. on TV in the past week. One on Prince. Right. One on Alice Cooper. Wow. Are you interested in either? Uh, Prince, yeah, yeah, Alice Cooper, not so much. Not so much. But, yeah, I saw a really crap documentary about Prince where it's just sort of like voiceovers of people talking about him and lots of stills. And yeah, was it one when they couldn't get clearance to play any of his music? Pr yeah, oh, man, those, are the, those are the pits. It was terrible. Yeah, it was like a VH1 special. No, actually, I saw one of those kind of documentaries this week. Um, someone had bought me. It was like a four-hour documentary on ATV and <laughs> uh, the Central Region, but. I thought, wow, this is going to be a pretty. Ex this is going to have to be pretty exhaustive. Yeah. But when I went through, they hadn't got clearance for practically anything. <laughs> so they were going on and on about Tiswas, but they just had the graphic, <laughs> the logo of Tiswas, <laughs> and the same with Crossroads mm. and Blockbusters and all these kind of shows. But um, well, are you ready for Panto season then? Oh no, I'm not. She's dead. But I'm still a virgin. Bucket of Blood and the Little Shop of Horrors writer Charles B. Griffith wrote and directed 1980's Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype, a comedic updating of Robert Louis Stevenson's tale of conflicting moral characters within one mind. Oliver Reed is kind-hearted podiatrist Dr. Heckle, who dreams of losing his virginity but is prevented by his physical resemblance to an Afro-sporting toad. 
After ingesting a colleague's special diet paste, it looks like Heckle's hopes of being deflowered will be realised as he transforms into cocksure and dashingly handsome Mr. Hype. But it's not only a physical change that occurs, as the increasingly vain and deranged Hype leaves a garbage bin of would-be lovers in his wake. Will Heckle find love, and will the cops find Hype? I'm a bit reluctant when people ask me what the worst film I've ever seen is. (laughs) Because, to be fair, you'd have to have watched that film right to the very end. Mm. Usually if a film, when a film is awful, I'll give it about 20 minutes and then just, you know, that'll be the end of it for me. Yeah. Because we were reviewing it, I did actually sit through all of this, and you got a big smile on your face. <laughs> did you think this had any merits whatsoever? I can understand why you did, because this was your selection. Yeah, <laughs> I'd heard of it before. The idea of Oliver Reed doing this kind of Jekyll and Hyde comedy—that um, sounds—it sounds like it's got to have something going for it. And I was, I was quite keen to see it. We've had to really go around the houses to actually find a copy of it, haven't mm. we? It's sort of old VHS off eBay. Yeah. But uh, yeah, come on. What did you think of this? I it was really split me. Part of me absolutely hated it, the <laughs> the Jekyll, the Jim part, <laughs> and, and the, the heckle. Sorry, and the hype. Yeah, it was. Uh, I was well hyped up for. I thought some of it was really funny. I was laughing very hard. Whether or not <laughs> you're looking at me incredulously. Seriously? Yeah, I thought some of it was hilarious. I'm astonished. <laughs> No, genuinely, honestly, from the heart, I thought there was um, some really funny moments. I mean, there's like Dick Miller's cameo, which I enjoyed. Him playing a, um, a personality character. as well, though. He's kind of having two conversations with himself. Just that very opening as well, when you've got uh, Oliver Reed's voiceover, he just comes on the screen as um, Heckle. Heckle, that's the twist in this, is that Heckle actually looks like traditionally Hydewood is this yeah. kind of gargoyleish character. <laughs> he with, looks so funny. With kind of bags under his eyes, this big pointy nose and this well his haircut actually looks like I think the old Frederick March uh, Mr. Hyde from the 30s. Okay. But yeah. I've not seen that so oh, I, I just a, thought it looked like a wet opera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No that's well worth watching the Frederick, Frederick March one. No I mean this it just struck me that comedies suffer more than any others in that kind of worst film state because if you're watching a drama or something that doesn't really pull it off you can watch the whole thing and just think that didn't quite get its story across or its message with a comedy if you're just watching flat jokes all the way through you're painfully aware that it's not hitting the marks at all and this you've got to tell me what did you actually laugh at in this because I was (laughs) I was you were aware it was a comedy you know it had that tone to it but I was I'm not being sarcastic. No, no. I was hard pressed to actually identify the jokes in it. <laughs> you, you got there were scenes that were generally kind of light, but you couldn't actually see. Well, is that line meant to be funny or? Yeah, just the I'm, fact that people have weird toenails. It's, it's not so much the writing that I found funny. It's, I was laughing at it more than than with it. <laughs> <Probably>. <laughs> uh, just the ri- just the ridiculousness of it. Because even for like 1980, it had a very sort of dated approach, which I suppose Charles. Griffith, as we um, mentioned, is like from the Corman school. He goes way back. Yeah, yeah. as a writer. And he doesn't seem to have progressed at all. <laughs> Regressed, last. if anything. Yeah. Yes, I think famous. It was. Did he do the script for Death Race 2000? Yes. Which, yeah, which is a fun film. I don't think it's ever quite as good as the reputation had because it was a real schoolyard favourite. Have you seen this thing in the <laughs> early days of video? But that's Paul Bartel directing. So I think I might. I might give him the credit for a lot of what works <laughs> in it now. Yeah. And this and performances. is. Griffith is someone that did Tarantino dedicate death, uh, proof. death proof to him, saying he was the godfather of 
Redneck Cinema or something. Yeah, something like that, yeah. yeah we've both forgotten their notes tonight. You, <laughs> you, may, you may notice as we press on. <laughs> but he was also, I'm pretty sure on Wikipedia, they claim say he's the originator of black, black comedy, even. Get out of town. Yeah. <laughs> Absolute nonsense. But yeah, I mean, the, the, there was a genuinely... Um, Laugh out loud moments for me. The, the was, ridiculousness was that the, of the was that maybe the attempted rape that ended in electrocution. <laughs> yes, that's. That I was, thought that was great. That was a howler, was it? <laughs> it was though. I mean, uh, I think other people have said this when I was looking on the internet about it. Is that there are a number of deaths in it that seem so out of sync with actually the plot because they're they're, they're reasonably violent and by today's oh, standards they're, they're done they're pretty very, tame. Yeah, but yeah, I just didn't know. Also, like I didn't know what was going on, which I found funny because you, I couldn't predict what was going to be happening next. And you know, some of the side gags they made me laugh, uh, like the cock who can't feel anything. <laughs> I feel no pain, <laughs> and he's like got these little racks oh. for his feet. I, I don't know it's 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 inane, but the black midget with his giggle. tiny toilet. Yeah. Oh, and that he's from um, Bad Santa. Bad Santa, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. The Tony some Cox. <laughs> Tony Cox. So we haven't got it. <laughs> But yeah, we haven't really explained the setup such as it is. But yeah, um, Oliver reads Heckle, who's a podiatrist, a virgin, very shy, very ugly. People get away from him because he's so repulsive. But when he takes Jackie Coogan, isn't it, playing the um, one of his fellow doctors, mm. uh, Uncle Fester from the Adams family, and to, to think this guy's career started working with Charlie <laughs> Chaplin in The Kid, and then kind of winds <laughs> up doing this kind of Drake. Absolutely, I couldn't think of the right word for it. <laughs> oh. Um, yeah, Jackie Coogan invents some diet paste, which, uh, with hilarious visual gags, makes fat women into supermodels, briefly, but turns um, Heckle into Oliver Reed. Into Oliver Reed, <laughs> who christens himself Doctor Hype, which is that kind of gets to the nub of this. The title is such a sort of well, you've just taken Jekyll and Hyde and slightly changed it, but it doesn't really mean anything, does no, it? No, Heckle and Hype. It's just. He just sees the word hype written somewhere. Yeah, he he has to come up with a pseudonym very quickly and sees it written in a newspaper. (laughs) My name's Hype. Aren't all names just Hype? (laughs) You're laughing at this. Yeah, I think that's funny. (laughs) It's so awful. (laughs) I'm not cultured enough. (laughs) Yeah, I should have left my brain in the lobby. Well, I was watching it at like one this morning after watching Casanova. Were you a bit hysterical? Yes, quite. (laughs) Right. You were a bit wired, perhaps. But the twist is that um, Hype is handsome but is a real misanthrope. So it does have a little bit of logic because initially the, the, the main thing is he, he gets to this bus stop which he keeps going to, which is a bit of a running joke. Usually people get away from him, but here he's sort of barging in to get the last seat from an old woman. Mm. Um, I don't know if that was meant to be funny or just some indication that he well, was, It just shows his character, doesn't yeah, it? See, this know, is it. I can't distinguish bastard. the jokes from just things that are happening. Yeah, well, I guess, but... There's sometimes there's, there's those kind of films that come along which are so off the mark that I can't help but like them for being... That would have been better blurb on the cover of the cassette than what they have, which is just another young Frankenstein. Yeah, right, it sounds yes. quite weary, doesn't it? Like, oh, another young Frankenstein. <laughs> if Love at First Bite wasn't bad enough. Well. Also, to compare it to that as well, I, mean, <laughs> I think Brooks is in a different league, isn't it? So. But there are... I did enjoy watching it on video as well because I've, I've been buying a lot of Blu-rays recently. Well, watching a lot of Blu-rays and just <laughs> it felt like stepping back into the past again, you know, trying to make out because the blacks are so black and the way it's lit is very... <laughs> going to stretch your imagination. Yeah. A bit like Barber-esque with... Um, 
it's the not the neons most... and pur- uh, pinks and purples. This probably wouldn't happen on any of the show, <laughs> but that's it's the least barber of the three films tonight. Yes. the other two are far more barber. They are, yeah, but it still has that um, this is weird th- sort of spooky look mm. where it's very fake. You know, it's I, obviously I kind of I'll, I'll give you Jews there because like a little the, bit of outside the, his apartment, there's like just a wall of bright pink, a wall of purple, and then everything's just like blue and black shadows. And I thought it. It lent it something. Obviously, I don't think it was intentional by any stretch of the imagination. I honestly don't think anything was intentional <laughs> here. It really feels like something Oliver Reed would have come up with over lunch with someone who had some money, and they'd have gone, yeah, okay, we'll get that script ready for tomorrow morning. Because <laughs> in fairness, yeah, Reed looks like he's having a good time. That he opening does. shot, because I remember when you lent me the tape, um, and you said you'd watch the first minute just to see that the tape worked okay. He said it looks really bizarre, and the opening is his head bobbing up. He's coming up some steps in the open with uh, all of that makeup, but he walks along with his ass out like Max Wall, <laughs> and he's got this peculiar kind of American lisping accent when he's heckle, isn't yes. he? Yeah. <laughs> um, but he he does look like he's putting some um, he's putting some work in. Mm. It's probably Jackie Coogan too, but I just you just re- this is nineteen eighty. This is a time when an airplane was sort of you know out and about and you just think comedy would have I'm trying to think how old Griffith would be at this point he was born in the 30s it feels like someone who's badly out of step and he's, <laughs> uh, his, his idea of what makes for a comedy is just so badly out of whack I mean did you think given we've mentioned this scene when an attempted rape ends in electrocution which I did actually chuckle at not because of it's not because of the idea but because it's so badly done the electrocution it's like a cartoon thing this woman's, woman's tongue sticking in and out rapidly and and all the transformations are done with that fast editing as well yeah. yeah but I really like that I mean there's something that it's it's so piecemeal but I, I really appreciated it <laughs> oh dear and also there was uh, there's that crazy scene where hypes driving away from he's being chased or he's chasing a woman and then he just stops in the middle of the road because there's this the camera just zooms in on this woman bent over she like starts chatting to him and it's this like really pretty woman but she's got the voice of janet street porter oh yes do you remember that she's like all right all right love. It's, it's only been a week since i've watched this but things are coming back to me now <laughs> like a, a child abuse memory or something <laughs> But yeah, tellingly, the electrocution and that woman bending over are both on the cover, aren't they? There's yeah. kind of a cartoon, uh, a comic strip thing mm. on the cover with little speech bubbles coming out of it, which again, don't make any sense. <laughs> they just seem to have been done by someone it's also endearing, the though, the fact that it is just such a hodgepodge like, of yeah, ridiculousness. Because I'm now remembering a scene towards the end when someone else, there's a, there's a kind of orderly who goes around with a huge feather for most of the <laughs> yes, film, tickling yeah. people, who's not particularly explained what he's doing. Is he a fetishist it does, or something? He uh, acuticular, I think. Oh. It's not acupuncture. And, <laughs> right. uh, he's Yeah, he goes around, it's like tickle therapy. and um, Yeah, because he... That's the level of humour that's He comes on. a cropper at the end, doesn't he? But also, mm. yeah, and then they have the, like, the, there's like the police of trying to catch hype for his yeah. crimes and th- the police station appears to be in this cave yeah why where you have to walk up some steps uh, and, and again the, it's got all that strange lighting going there's like on. an ayatollah figure who's yeah. hanging around there he's, he's a, but he's in a uniform yeah. but it's like a oh, he's got a robes on, yeah. and um, a, turban. a turban but with a LA cop badge or Miami it, I'm not it's sure it's possible there were scenes deleted mercifully because it <laughs> does go on for yeah, it was over a cruel, an hour and a half it was a cruel joke because on the label it said 92 minutes but actually it's 100 minutes and that was extra 8 just oh my goodness <laughs> gracious I think this is by 
far the worst film we've covered. Either previously, uh, it would be things like Perrin Baba, Lantenna. No, Jonathan. Well, all, all of these films didn't pull it off, but at least you could tell someone had an intention of trying to do something a bit different, but they just didn't quite pull it off as far as I'm concerned, you know, that's mm. my opinion. Yeah. Um, this really just seemed like a Jolly Boys outing. It, it really <laughs> did, given that Reed was notorious for, you know, hanging out with people and drinking, mm. you could feel this was a project like he would have done with Keith Moon or something. Oh, definitely, yeah. I, I was actually would, thinking There would have that. just been enough money floating around between the two of them yeah. that they could get some mates round and do this in... Mm. I can't imagine this had a shooting schedule of more than two weeks. I wouldn't have thought so. No. no. In fact, you know what? I've got something here which <laughs> I think is going to sum up. It's, it's got more humour to it than the actual film. So uh, this is a little sound effects machine I was given, and I'm going to go... <laughs> yeah, that's it's the level of comedy going bomb. on, or, or possibly... <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> there you go. No, well, I, I'll as a as an addendum, I, I'd say go and watch it if you can, if you can get hold of a copy. I think it's worth it. Don't I think don't it, bother. I it, think it's, it's too much effort for your fingers to even type <laughs> into the search engine at, at Amazon or eBay. I nearly dented your grill, my buttocks, didn't I? Okay, so competition time. Um, yeah, <laughs> there's another one up. You're meant to be selling this. Man, you should be making heckle and hype. The third quiz is up with some clips you've lovingly prepared. Tough one, as we said last show. Yeah, um, uh, the thing is, because of the nature of how we record these things, I, last show we couldn't read out who won, and I think I'd already put up the competition. And we need ourselves coming back. Yeah. It's like Back to the Future too. Exactly. Um, but also, given last time we had so much feedback, we were reading loads and loads of A to Zs through Midnight Video, the Michael Little's um, Astonishing... Onion. Astonishing <laughs> Mind Onion from Another Plane of Existence. This week, nada. Yeah, no, that's kind of. Uh, I haven't really like pushed anything on no. the. I did make a new suggestion for your f films that you've seen over the last year, old or new, um, that you'd like to mention on the show, but that's not till the Christmas show, anyway. Yeah, and by the time this show goes up, we'll have recorded that show probably. Probably there. So, <laughs> hey, but we'll, we'll you know. <laughs> but yeah, competition time. Third Ooh. one's up, um, ready on the website. <laughs> and here are the answers from the second Midnight Video quiz. So there can only be one winner. Well, unless it's a draw. But we'll read out the answers not. first. Okay, yeah, I'll do that. I was I was just trying to launch in to make that. There can only be happy. one winner. <laughs> but who will it be? We want to encourage people to keep listening for a few more seconds. <laughs> uh, yeah. So number one, I think it's pretty obvious, but it was cruising. <laughs> William Freakin's excellent movie about the. Um, a killer on the underground gay scene in... Was it in San Francisco? I think so. Yeah. It always is, isn't it? Al Pacino stretching his acting muscles. <laughs> and his dancing um, muscles. Having them stretched for him. Wow. <laughs> great film, though. No, yeah, in, in, I really like that. Yeah. Great soundtrack as well. Mm. Uh, number two, Hot Rod, uh, featuring Andy Samberg. Ian McShane's in there. Ian McShane? Yeah, Ian McShane's in Love that as his stepdad, yeah. yeah. I really like that. It's one of the, the better comedies in oh. recent years. Um, Lovejoy there. We've got Tinker coming up. 
in a little while. Number three, we've got uh, Return to Oz. I didn't recognise that at all. When he was showing me the, the quiz, I just I didn't recognise it. It looked so weird, was it? This animated wall. Yeah, there's the Troll King controls all like the stones. These yeah. minions are like go yeah. through rock surfaces. No, because it is one of those films that I was a little too old for when it came out. But, um, but it's I've a shame. Heard, I've it's heard great. a few people say uh, who've got some uh, affection for it. So yeah, I, I think I it's check it out. it's one of those films that will genuinely scare children. You know, you could probably show a child like Dawn of the Dead and they'll be like, yeah, whatever. But you sh- Return to Oz is very sinister. Show it them and they'll be shitting lizards. <laughs> Number four, one of my favourites with, uh, well, I don't know, he's a divisive actor, is Danny Dyer, but uh, I've got a lot of affection for him. And, uh, yeah, Human Traffic with his amazing taxi driver rant to a taxi driver. Number five, Pusher 3, Nicholas Winding Refn's final part of his Pusher trilogy. Brilliant films, that's my favourite one, personally. And, you know, he's going on to do great things. And I found out, actually, via the winner of the competition oh, yes. that Winding Refn has the only 16mm print of Andy Milligan's Nightbirds which is being released on the BFI Flipside series in Ooh. February and Ooh. he's overseeing it uh, Refn and Stephen Thrower Winding Refn and Jim McDonough is writing uh, in the booklet <laughs> I've not seen any Andy Milligan. It's, uh, <coughs> no, I, have, I haven't seen any, but this is oh, like God, one of his um, British movies. So. It's not got Danny Dyer in. No, <laughs> unfortunately not. Number six, Kickboxer, JCVD, at the peak of his powers. I'll see the doctor about that. <laughs> number seven, absolutely fantastic, Tetsuo the Iron Man. Uh, number eight, uh, Richard Stanley's second feet. No, first feature. Dust. No, second feature. Hardware first. Yeah, for Hardware was his debut, wasn't it? Yeah, Dust Devil. I should know that because I was chatting on Twitter about it last night. Dust Devil and Hardware. But yeah, Dust Devil's great. Hickle and Hype has left your brain like a <laughs> uh, Number nine, a bit obscure, Atana Jurat, The Fast Runner, a film, an Inuit film. One of the few Inuit films, but I really love that. It's extraordinary, beautiful, and a very unusual story. Well worth checking out, no, like no. everything, <laughs> almost everything, <laughs> like Heckle and Hype. Yeah. <laughs> Gonna keep going. An back Eskimo to that. version of Heckle and Hype would be no. Awesome. It's well, actually, it's not far off that because a, a shaman comes into a village and no one can tell if he's joking or takes over, like sort of possesses people, and it causes a lot of riff. And yeah, there's there's a lot of attempted rape going and attribution. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's really great. It's um. Yeah, so different from like, Western-style filmmaking. And number 10, one of my favourites of recent years, White Lightning, the standout performance from uh, young Edward Hogg and Carrie Fisher. Really? Yeah, she's in it too. Have you seen No, I've, 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 I've got to say, I've not even heard of it. Oh, wow. I'll the only that. White Lightning I know. <laughs> oh, yeah, that one. The, the, strong, <laughs> the good stuff. The strong cider. Oh, this is um, this is stronger than that cider. It's, wow. it's pretty visceral, but great film. So, yeah, that well, that rounds up that one. <laughs> the winner is uh, Chris Salt. Again, second time you've won something off us. The Salt Man. This means that more people need to enter competitions. Definitely. Come on, get on it, guys. It's free. Maybe you need to make the competitions a little bit easier, but not much easier. At least... Um, I just don't think people can be asked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I suppose I should try. Down. <laughs> Congratulations, um, Chris. But Chris already had a T-shirt. 
He does. Well, if, you, if you want a second one, I'm sure that's um, that's cool. Yeah, if, for some reason. <laughs> but um, we have a selection of Blu-rays and DVDs that you might be interested in. You're, you're well, you say selection. Sure, selection. Well, more than one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll see what I've got lying around. But yes, we'll be back in touch with you. So come on, someone knock the crown off the salt man's head. <laughs> He's the king of competitions, isn't he? He is. He won Adam and Joe's and ours and who knows what Probably other podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations, Chris. And enter that third one that's up there now. Get in there. Woo! adapting the life of history's most renowned womanizer in his 1976 movie, Fellini's Casanova finds Donald Sutherland as the libertine lover, whose Munchausen-like tales and sexual exploits around the courts and inns of Europe the stuff of legend. From his non-philandering days and imprisonment in Venice to the ribald and surreal court of the Bavarian king, the priapic paramour delves into the black magic arts and arm wrestles giant women. But do the primal temptations of the flesh plague the scientific and alchemical yearnings of this renaissance man? I haven't seen that much Fellini. Well, <laughs> I've seen two now, but I've seen Eight and a Half a few times, which I really love. I, I think that's a really, really spectacular film. So I approach this with some kind of trepidation because I know that it, his later period has often been um, critically lambasted, hasn't it? Well, from from what I've read, and also <laughs> the thought of watching Donna. Sutherland dubbed for two and a half hours into with an Italian uh, voiceover, but I was really surprised by it. It was quite a spectacle. It put in mind lots of films that I know, but have obviously referenced it. Certainly, like Greenaway, uh, Gilliam, Ken, Ken Russell, Ken Russell as well. Yeah, see, these are things I'd written in my notebook, but I forgot <laughs> to bring. But yeah, uh, definitely. The main word for me is bawdy. It was just like riotous. It was. Like you, I've not really seen any Fellini. I've tried eight and a half a few times and not really got past the opening. Um, <laughs> well, I've probably got 10, 20 minutes into it. It's mm. no heckling hype. <laughs> I'm sure I'll get round to it eventually. But that's it. Uh, for, he's always. I think my main thing that I know about Fellini when I was a younger guy was that Woody Allen was seen as early funny films, then he watched too much Bergman and Fellini and was trying to do their stuff. And I recognised what the Bergman qualities were, but the Fellini stuff had never really... Mm. I've not seen Fellini. I only know him through that filter of what I imagine Woody Allen has um, lifted from there. Right. So films like Eight and a Half have reputation of being great works of art and very serious, so I was happy to watch this, <laughs> which, like you say, is bawdy, and I think the Ken Russell kind of... Uh, there is something about it that reminds me of The Devils. I don't think yeah. it's as serious-minded a, a film as that. But and, Or they both have Dudley Sutton in mm -hmm. um, Tinker from Love. Yes, Talk. yeah. But there's something about just that whole... I suppose it's a way of somewhat modern, modern looking at a world of a few hundred years back mm -hmm. and showing that it was completely debauched. Yeah, yeah. Just chaos and orgies. But not in a sort of indulging in pleasure. It more seemed like humanity had gone totally mad and was just doing whatever it wanted you know, but yeah, debauched I can't think of another word for it the thing is though, Ken Russell at this time was doing Listomania which I know you've not watched yet but no. has a similar feel, but that's much more of a whacked out kind of fantasy mm. 
Yeah, I really enjoyed this. It, it just looks spectacular. I've got to say, it's, it's the only Fellini I think I've seen all the way through, and I'm mm. keen to watch those other ones from what you call this critically lambasted period. Um, <laughs> well, post eight and a half, I yeah, think. Yeah, like Satyricon, I think, is meant yep. to be a similar kind of thing. So I'm mm. very keen to watch that, even though it's got the guy from Goodbye Gemini. Oh, yes, that's right. Um, but yeah, the, the main thing to say about this is the design of it is fantastic. Whatever, I, I, I couldn't really tell you too much about Fellini as a director having watched this. It wasn't like he really amazed me with his choice of shots or composition or anything, but just the clothes design and the sets are absolutely amazing in it. They're out there, aren't they? They're, um, I can imagine Jean-Paul Gaultier watching this as a young younger man and um, yeah, certainly taking it on board. I mean, just from like the... The opening sequence is this um, raising of a huge um, bust. Is it a bust? I wasn't I think sure it's, it was a prow of a ship. Or something uh, first, I think it's though. meant to be kind of a bust, right? Um, but it's 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 such a spectacle, and then with this big carnival going on around it. Yeah, because it's in, it's set in Venice. Mm. Uh, well, the opening sequence is in Venice, but then you quickly realise that oh, it's all in a studio. I mean, it's it's there's a lot of artifice going on through this. Yeah, whole it's film. entirely filmed in. I can never pronounce it. Is it Cinecitta or Cinecitta? Yeah. 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 So you've got all that spectacle, and then he gets called away for a, a liaison, and you realise he's going to this island on a boat, but the sea is actually just black plastic bags being yeah. moved and waved around by wind, wind machines and everything. Yeah. And it's, it's, at first, I was sort of questioning, like, am I watching this properly, or is, is that actually really happening? It seemed quite odd, you know, a, a filmmaker of his uh, standing would, who could probably splash out as much money as he wanted to, would opt for this, but I suppose that maybe goes into some part of his psyche, about how he wanted to portray this film Yeah, the whole for thing that feels like an opera or a stage show of some sort. Very yeah, grand. theatrical. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't look cheap though, does it? The black plastic bags I can imagine that was logistically quite a difficult thing to I pull. guess yeah yeah and indeed later there's one bit when I thought oh they're out of the studio now but you realize it was a backdrop wasn't it with the skies the, with the very dark clouds across I was gonna say the snow as well the yes, snow scenes, yeah. which just looked they had perspective mm. that seemed to go on into the distance but it was very cleverly done with mist and yeah uh, like the bridge scene I mean we're we're sort of picking out yeah. <laughs> scenes so here uh, there's, there's, there's an artificiality <laughs> to it which I think is deliberate and mm. um which is reflective we, of Casanova as a character as well, I think. Well, we say as a character. One thing I was going to say about... As I was watching it last night, and this is the second time I've seen it, I watched it much earlier on in the year, um, I was really enjoying that whole look of it, and um, but just thinking, wow, if this is a two-and-a-half-hour movie, Casanova has no character at all, and it doesn't really matter that it's Donald Sutherland playing it. You mm. wouldn't really... You can kind of recognise him, but... He's under a prosthetic nose, prosthetic chin. He's had his head shaved back a little, his hairline. Um, he's dubbed, so it may as well have been anybody. Yeah. I know to, to, um, when Robert Dino Redford. De Laurentiis was going to be producing it, he wanted Redford. You think, well, yeah, <laughs> what would be the point of that? You know, you could tell Dino wanted the great lover there. You know, whereas I know, um, well, I know having read Wikipedia, Fellini's intention was that he couldn't stand the idea of Casanova. He didn't like this celebration of this adventurer who was just around shacking his way around Europe yeah. so the adventures are the stuff of legend but Casanova himself is a completely empty character isn't he you have occasional times when he might just I think he weeps at one uh, point when is it Henriette when uh, she's playing the yeah. cello yeah. and then I don't think this is too much of a spoiler but the one genuine relationship he seems to have isn't with even his mother which you might think it's with this 
mechanical doll who turns up in the um, sort of last half hour or so of the yeah. film. Which I think then ties in with how this deliberate artifice of everything, you know, the fact totally, that he seems yeah. much more involved. He's, he doesn't really have a human connection with anything. It's more about his own myth. Yeah, yeah, I, I certainly thought that, and I also thought that the way, um, you know, he's renowned as a lover, but in subsequent scenes, he's always trying to push himself in a sort of be taken seriously as uh, that's lovely, yeah, um, a scientist or a mathematician or an alchemist or a philosopher. And it's generally just quashed, though, because yeah. his dick gets the better of him. <laughs> or that's what people. Or that's from what people. Him. Yeah. Because yeah, I think the earliest time we see him in action, as twere, is with this sort of nun on the island, um, <laughs> who, who says, "Oh, you know, you'll be performing with me, but my lover is here. He wants to watch from behind this painting." So we never get. But he's someone. He's quite a big wig, isn't he? He's a French ambassador. Yeah. So. Casanova does his whole performance, um, and afterwards he's just talking to this painting, saying, "If you'd listen to, if you could put a word in for me, yes, I have this yeah. great new system, which I think <laughs> might even be the lottery." Um, yeah, he did invent the lottery. He tried to sell it to England. Wow! Um, but he comes up with, "Oh, I've got this great economic system, which will increase the country's profits and stuff." If you could pass it, you know, and um, no one wants him for that. And later, no. when he's going around courts, he becomes more of a. He doesn't seem to realise it, but he becomes more of a performing monkey, doesn't mm. he, really? He's just there for his, his um, kudos of having this great sort of uh, sexual athlete there. <laughs> Literally a sexual athlete at one point, isn't yeah. it? Oh, yeah, when they have the, the race. Yes, to the see, race. I think, how many times they can um, hit, that, hit that perfect high boy. <laughs> <laughs> Curiously, though, given that it is is famous as a womanizer and uh, this great lover, it's it's a really unsexy movie it's there's nothing very arousing in it at all and indeed the, all of the times that Sutherland's on the job again I think this goes in with the artifice of it it just looks like he's doing push-ups or some some yeah. sort of um, <laughs> peculiar exercise he, he keeps his long johns on for most of it there's, mm. the, it there's nothing arousing in this film no no not at all and I don't know whether that's whether that's because of censorship at the time or it was a, a very deliberate um, uh, choice by Fellini to say, well, Distance you know, it. yeah, exactly, yeah, just uh, keep it, keep it away. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> keep it away from it. Getting too deep. Because the the one time that the the sex here actually seems to be have some realism to it is when he's with this hunchback woman. Oh God, yeah. In a um, in a sort of four poster bed which has. Um, Window, well, windows, shutters on it, and that's the only time we actually see some sweat on people's brow and stuff, rather than this just very mechanical. That's quite incredible that scene yeah. as well. It's all really musically orientated. It's, it's, it's like musically oriented. They're going at it. Um, Casanova a and Hunchback on the bed are surrounded by several other women. One of who's just jiggling her tits in his face. Yeah. And I was watching, and yeah, as you say, it's, uh, people all around the court are sort of touching themselves, and you're just trying to wonder what. Because presumably this wasn't done in one shot. This was probably filmed over a couple of days. <laughs> you can imagine Fellini just going, Kurt, go again. It's, yeah. yeah. Everyone in position. <laughs> but it's, yeah, I, like you said, the, um, the the set design was so extraordinary. And it is very much like what um, what Jarman did for uh, The Devils. And also like with Greenaway, in fact, I, I can't help but reference him, certainly for stuff like The Baby of Macon yeah. and Cook Thief and Draftsman's Contract. Not so much dra Draftsman's, Draftsman's Contract. Draftsman's if you had the, the money, I think. For the wigs and yes. the costume, but certainly for the actual set design, 
everything's cavernous like yeah. humans are so small and the the buildings are so big they dwarf everyone and yeah. it, it gives it gives this sort of feeling of everyone thinks they're so important but they're so in, insignificant by the yeah. surroundings i remember greenaway's notes and i think it's the draftsman's contract soundtrack he writes a little bit about the film and so yeah. I don't know if, um, if this is something he came up with or if he's quoting from someone else but he always says Draftsman's Contract is, an, is not an historical film it's science fiction it's an investigation of another world that we don't really recognise and this feels very much the same you so, know. Yeah. it's a film I've, ref- I've harped on about a bit I often look at films and think wow this is what Dune should have looked like <laughs> I do <laughs> yeah. think this is probably what Yodorowsky's Dune might have looked mm. like that kind of from those Mobius production um, designs yeah and also, I think it's, it's pretty telling. You know, in the Mike Hodges Flash Gordon, one of the dwarves is called Fellini. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's very much, yeah. sort of very much with an eye to this film. So, yeah, g- given Casanova doesn't have much of a character here, did it keep you going for two and a half hours? Yeah, surprisingly, <laughs> it did. I mean, it was all the um, the other characters, really, that kept me more involved than he did. He was just the link to each episode, I found. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was what was going to happen next because at first I was a bit confused with the chronology of it all because mm. he does end up in prison quite early on and then he has a flashback in there and then all of a sudden he's talking about an escape and mm. he's going somewhere else it gets quite confusing whereabouts he is yeah. and it leaps mm. forward yeah decades doesn't it a long a long time yeah yeah, because it's um, again not spoiling it, but it, yeah, it does go through to the end of Casanova's life. Um, I've not seen it, but I know Dennis Potter did an adaptation for the BBC in the early seventies, which I've not seen, but I remember reading in the biography that he does something similar with his end. It has the last days of Casanova, but sort of ends with a flashback to him in his glory days, uh, right. which might seem an obvious thing, but it's something quite specific. And I'll, we won't say what it is in this film, but um, yeah, with the, the Potter, I think it's him escaping from the prison, which okay. I was reading about that this morning and there seems to be some historical fact to that but there he's making this daring escape which is even more daring in Wikipedia when it's something that would have taken the whole film to do with his gradually building up this escape plan with an armchair and a spike but some people have said no he probably just bribed one of the jailers to get (laughs) (laughs) rather than this thing which is more like Gormenghast or something escaping by ropes over the rooftops (laughs) But yeah, the main thing I'd say is it looks beautiful. Sutherland's doing his best, but it's, it's weird to think he was filming this about the same year he did this. He did the Eagle has landed. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, charming IRA man. He was a big fan of uh, was it Lestrada though? I think so. He, uh, I think he was quite yeah Redford enamored with the idea of working with Philip Nuff. <laughs> but uh, I did just want to mention one particular scene which did allude to slightly in. Uh, the introduction that Jim read out, but when he's in the the court of the Bavarian king, who is Dudley Sutton, that is just incredible with the organs, higher and higher organs. Yeah, they're sort of going out There's on like those library ladders, seven, aren't yeah. they? And the music is matching what's being played. And it, I don't know if you could locate that on YouTube if you can't be bothered watching the whole film, but it is absolutely out there. Like you say, you know, the, the comparison to June, I can. I can see how something like that would have, like Hodorowsky would have yeah. easily mentioned that the uh, the Atreides or Harkonnens yes. were uh, going to want a, a meal or something, and that sort of took place. That was just mind blowing. Um, so, did did you find there's anything emotional about this at all? I mean, I thought the ending was quite sad, but I th- yeah, I, I 
felt sorry for him, but it was kind of pity. You know, mm. it's pity you feel for someone who's come to the end of their life and yeah. not done anything that they would. They well, that's the thing. He wants to be done. known as this great academic and scientist, but he's just yeah. But it's funny. It's a bit like because I'm reading. I've just read an essay on Lovecraft by Michelle Welbeck, and it's a similar kind of thing where they never achieved anything through their life, but now the mm. they're in um, the the names are in stone. Fellini is always um, portrayed as, or his films are portrayed as being a part of him. They're often quite autobiographical, so I I'm not sure who he or where he is in this, but um, maybe it's more a, a vent of frustration. Mm. Um, a few other odd things to mention about it. Mr. Barlow from Salem's Lot turns up. Oh, yes. Yeah. Reggie Nieder. Nieder. Yeah. Who was also an Andorian in Star Trek. Oh, because the devil. Or the Devil's Nightmare, is it, or both? I don't Some, know. Yeah, he's he's and in Bird with a Crystal Plume, he's actually isn't yeah. He as well. Someone I hadn't mentioned, and yeah, neither of us have notes. What's his name? Is it Daniel Elf, Elf Fork or something? He's the guy in City of Lost Children who's the outrageous homosexual count in this, who does his whole stage performance oh, in that kind gosh, of yes. purple butterfly. Oh, I knew I'd recognise yeah, him. Yeah, because he's yeah. just a very peculiar-looking fellow, isn't he? Very. He's yeah. It's like it, you know when they say your lips in literature when they say your lips peel back from your teeth. <laughs> he's literally do that. There's something yes. very ugh, creepy about it. That whole section's very up. <laughs> yeah, Again, it's one of these. Like I say, it's episodic by nature. And some, he just I don't know. It gets increasingly stranger, doesn't it? As well. It does indeed. <laughs> um, and indeed, that whole sequence with the Venice Carnival at the beginning, which um, I know Mark Cousins had on his show recently, mm. um, had to be refilmed because the footage was stolen. Oh, because someone wanted... Someone wanted Pasolini's Salo. <laughs> but they ended up with... They ended up with some of that, but they ended up with all of that footage that had to be refilmed. And also some spaghetti western with Patrick McGoo. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Really, I didn't know he did it. Yeah, I, oh yeah, um, <laughs> I can't. I think that's called something like a, a genius and a gambler. As oh, oh, I should have written it down. Oh, well. you should have remembered. Yeah, that. I should have remembered <laughs> to bring my notes. What does Casanova get? time a few weeks back I wasn't that drunk was oh yeah I was you were out of control <laughs> out of control you were on those big ladder steps playing away on the organs or <laughs> I love that I'd love a, a themed a Casanova themed pub oh think of the people it would attract though <laughs> that's, that's half the fun but uh, yeah uh, as we went on about at some length on the last show um, the Chandos wasn't quite what we were hoping it was a bit too hectic and ram jammed Potential Legionnaire's disease. Indeed. <laughs> so um, we're going to be having another one. I, I foolishly put my diary back in my jeans. The 14th of January? Pretty sure you're right. On a Saturday. 14th, yeah. 14th of January on a Saturday. Yeah. This time at the Blue Posts, which is again a Sam Smith, so nice and cheap. And does have an upstairs to it. Yeah, and it's... it's, it's, it's Although it might not be open in the afternoon. But yeah, 11 o'clock. 
it's a bit out of the way as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I'm trying to think what it is. I think it's on the corner of East Castle and Newman Street, and he's attacked by a big dinosaur in um, the Lost World, the 1920s one. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, because really? I've shown that cigarette burns a few times, and there's kind of a Diplodocus or something attacking a pub, but it's the Blue Posts. That's Sign. cool. Go go for a pint. You get attacked by a uh, dinosaur. Uh, uh, oh, actually, <laughs> didn't they say that Diplodocus didn't actually exist, or was that a Brontosaurus? There was some sort of furor about. Really? Is this one of those ago. things when they put the wrong bones together and yeah. invented <laughs> a whole a new breed of Bolicosaurus? Uh, Bolicosaurus, <laughs> <laughs> the Rongosaurus. <laughs> um, but yeah, that will be January the fourteenth. We're looking forward to that. So get that written down and put it in your diaries. Save it for a rainy day. Cheers. They are vice-ridden bodies, they shameless embraces. In such cases, only death can lend composure and dignity to the human monster. Charles Perrault is considered to be France's answer to the Brothers Grimm, and his folktale of the uxoricidal Bluebeard is updated here to a post-World War I setting in a totalitarian state somewhere in Europe. Richard Burton dons the beard of blue and plays Baron Kurt von Sepper, an aristocratic war hero whose threshold has seen more than its fair share of wives passed over it. His latest wife, Anne, played by Joey Heatherton, makes a shocking discovery in the castle home, and it's only a matter of time before she herself becomes a part of Von Sepper's murderous past. As I said in Heckle and Hype, on any other show, saying that it was quite Barber-like would be kind of something of note, but it is the least Barberish Heckle and Hype. This, I'm going to say, is the Barberist. Yeah, it's this gets gold. It's all over in, in the Barva Olympics. <laughs> Had you heard of this before? No, it's seventies uh, Burton. We yeah, we had a bit of a thing for him, didn't we? Well, Not after Boom, because it is great that he's got this reputation as a serious thesp. But I think during the seventies, possibly, I'm, I'm possibly speaking out of turn, in order to finance his Elizabeth Taylor habit, he was taking any old crap. <laughs> And as soon as the name of the Salkins came up at the beginning of this, I think you know it's going to be a lot of money thrown at something very peculiar. Mm. I did kind of know of this, because I remember seeing a trailer for it. I think it was like a very late-night Friday movie when I was a kid on, on TV. Right. And I remember them putting the trailer up before the news and just being quite confused about whether it was a horror movie or not. Because it kind of... I mean, obviously, this is well over 30 years ago. I can't remember too much, but it, just the vividness of the colours and just the bizarreness of that name Bluebeard as well, and Burton, you know. And um, I was very pleased when we watched the trailer um, a few months back. And f for once, the film lives up to the trailer. It really is. <laughs> it's like the trailer, but more so, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's extremely episodic. And, um, yeah, there's, there's the original tale of Bluebeard, this wife murderer. What? How's that pronounced again? Uxoricidal. Uxoricidal, yes. Right, okay. you, you wrote all the introductions this time around. You, you tripped yourself up. But yeah, they've located it. It's it's not actually Germany, is it? It's meant to kind of look that way, but it does have very specific allusions to the Kristallnacht. Yeah. Uh, Jewish ghetto being cleared out. Um, but their swastika looks more like the one in Pink Floyd's The Wall. I was going to say, it? it's, it's like the hammers, the isn't it? Hammers yeah. <laughs> on red armbands. Um, with Burton as this sort of World War One fighter pilot who's now a great hero aristocrat with his succession of amazing wives it must be said what what Fellini's Casanova lacked in sexiness <laughs> this more than makes up for ooh la la <laughs> yeah definitely oh my god I was uh, bowled over by the uh, is that what you call it <laughs> by the beauty on display here the bevy of beauties 
Wow. But they're, they're, they're only part of the, the film as a whole, though. And I absolutely loved this film. I'm going to put my neck on the line here, but I really <laughs> think Appropriate it's... Appropriate phrase. It's, yeah, it's, it's one of the best films I've seen this year. Really? Yeah, it's absolutely knocked me out. Like Boom did as well. It's It just seems to be weird that he went through this phase of making apparently bad movies at that time. And they're just far from bad. They're interesting, unique, different. Um, they're not poorly acted, really. They're well shot. Yeah, they're just great yeah. products. Technically, this is excellent. Mm. Um it's like it's like any other show, but for the Fellini's Casanova so visually rich, all those set designs and costumes. This, or the costumes aren't as flamboyant, but they're incredible still. Even his pajamas. <laughs> but we see Burton in pajamas yeah. twice, and one he, it's they're kind of Greek, aren't they? They've mm. got this weird like patterning around them. His selection of outfits. He has this wonderful striped sort of gangsters outfit at one point. It's kind of very wide lapel pinstripes. Very suit. Vic Dakin. Oh man, it's amazing! But his his house is—I can't begin. <laughs> you, oh man, it's just—it's so red and blue the and all reds. these incredible colours. Because everything in the—is it the? It's the bedroom that's red, and everything is red in the bedroom. The lampshades, the wallpaper, the bedspread, the carpet—it's it, just an absolute assault of red. Yeah, the, no corners were cut here, uh, cost-wise. This was absolutely amazing looking. Raquel Welsh is second billing, although she's only in it for several minutes, isn't she? Because she's great. Yeah. The format of the film um, is Bluebeard. We get to see him with his current bride, who he kills during a boar hunt. Which again, oh yeah, there's um, well, it's, you, it's but, a lot of hunting. There's, like, every <laughs> there's animal you can think of gets killed. It's just it's Burton versus nature. <laughs> In, an, in an era of no animals were harmed in the making of this film, this seems well. I don't think any cats were seriously harmed in it, but um, I think the rest of the I think the most of the animals were. here were doing it for for real. They were the Jackie Chan of animals. <laughs> there's a horse. There's a great scene with a horse and carriage which comes off a bridge, mm. but you can tell they must have done that a few times because as soon as the horse gets to the bridge, it's looking around very briefly <laughs> as if again. Really? Yeah. Because once it's in there, it's scrambling around. I don't mean to take delight in animal suffering, but it just that sort of gets to something about this film. It was made in that peculiar window in the 70s, mm. probably between Easy Rider and Star Wars when things were in free fall a bit and probably people didn't really know what was now going to be a hit just everything was thrown up in the air so mm. you did given this film has pretty much vanished again like a lot of films that we cover which are kind of the point of the podcast if, if it has a point but like I say this must have had a lot of money lavished on it and I think it was an unusually big I can't I haven't got the figures to hand but it was a big payday for Burton I remember reading in that Melvin Bragg uh, biography right he got a lot of money for this and as with Oliver Reed in Heckle and Hype I think he's really going for it here he looks to be really enjoying himself yeah he seems to be um, his character's very internal like there's he has to play it sort of his cards close to his chest because you know he's got these secrets and the thing is they're not that secret you are getting to see a lot of things but he he needs to retain some kind of mystery as a character and he does it brilliantly like unsurprisingly and yeah just to carry on from where you were going with the story before mm -hmm. we go on to his his contemporary bride after he's killed the boar hunt woman i forget <laughs> it greta yes after he kills greta he meets this american girl called Showgirl. Anna is it or Anne? Anne? Yeah. And um, he meets Joe Heatherton. Um, things don't really pan out the way that she thought. I mean, he's he's 
got that sort of animal magnetism or something. Women just throw themselves at his feet, basically, and inevitably he marries them and they disappear. She discovers where the where his past brides have gone, and then the last sort of hour of the film is flashbacks to why they went. Uh, his it's a kind of like Freudian pouring out of the heart, isn't it? As it goes on, because there's a lot of there's sort of like uh, maternal ref- uh, Oedipal references in. Oh there. yeah, there's a touch like, of the Norman Bates going on. As yeah, well. he's got this sort of his mother's mummified corpse hanging but, around. But then with some of these flashbacks. You've got this injection of humour, oh, like incredible that black is comedy in it. Cause so well done. A lot that of the absolute time, opposite of yes. um, the first film. <laughs> a lot of the time, on I'm on Bluebeard's side here. He he meets these incredible looking women, woos them, and then uh, as soon as they're in the house, they have so many. There's the one that just sings all the time. Brilliant. That was my favourite. And just the, this is it because Burton, known as something of an overactor, is doing a brilliant job of underacting. Mm. There's just little pained expressions on his face throughout <laughs> that bit with the singing, and you yeah. can tell when he's just kind of vaguely charmed by it. And then when it gets more and more irritating, up until the point when I don't think there's too much of a spoiler. Waxer and a guillotine. <laughs> It's great how she's introduced as well because I think she might be one of the first that he's explaining about why, uh, who he's she killed, is the first, and yeah. uh, you know, as the the sort of Vaseline smears on the uh, the lens and left over from Casanova, it goes whoa, 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 whoa. Um, cuts to this woman singing "I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles" into his face. <laughs> It's such a, it's such a juxtaposition from like this Beautiful. like outpouring of uh, hatred to what? <laughs> yeah, we have the singer as she's known. The yes. nun is Raquel Welsh, who turns up much later, and it's probably one of the lesser tableaus, I suppose. Mm. It is like a series of tableaus we get. I'm trying to think who else there is. Oh, there's the one who refers to her breasts with Christian names, which annoys Burton immensely. She's, uh, she does this baby talk. One's called Cyclamen. She's, she's I Erica, that. I think. Oh, yeah. Yasmin. Is, oh, it's um, Alan Delon's wife, <laughs> Natalie Delon. <laughs> right. Um, who then teams up with genre favourite Sybil Danning yes. from Battle Beyond the Stars. There's a <laughs> prostitute who gives her love lessons while Burton's hiding behind a painting looking through some cut-out eyes. But it's so obvious he's there because his shadow is there, <laughs> yes, his, yeah. his silhouette's there. So it's not it's its tongue is well and truly in its cheek mm. here. I gotta say it is a pretty sexy movie. I yeah, so they did a good job here. But it's Edward Edward Dimitrik who I know was on the blacklist. He was on um, during the sort of um, communist That's witch right, hunt. Yeah. But he's he's known for doing things like the K mutiny, so you can see why Burton might have been interested in this. Mm. And I think he does a good job. The directing is good here. It's it's a well made movie. It's but again, you know, it seems like we just throw this guy's name in all the time. But it has got a Ken Russell air of it. Yeah, <laughs> as you said with uh, Fellini, uh, the Casanova film. Mm. I really enjoyed it, and I just I was again I watched this a few months back. I watched it again last night in preparation for this. I just found myself chuckling so much in the opening not the very opening is him landing with no. his blue beard the first shots we have of blue beard at home is him sitting at an organ in his like, oh, private yes. sleep with a kestrel or a falcon or something that goes straight up and it's three so... great danes yes. around his feet and his cat with one eye <laughs> it's 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 wonderful and you know they it's meant to be a send up and i just think burns having a great time here but i was i was laughing at it and with it it's it's incredible and, and I'm, I'm pleased you enjoyed it so oh, much. 
really did. I'm, he can't do any wrong for me at the moment. I've, I've been on a roll this year with Burton Films. <laughs> it's like on the road. <laughs> but also, we how can we not mention Ennio Morricone's fantastic oh. score? Well, it is a really good score. Um, and again, it just it's one of these things that makes you amazed that it seems to have vanished. This really needs a good DVD. Clean. It's, it's a quite a good print we were watching. But, yeah, um, yeah. Man, this this could really do with some love and attention, and the the the, Eno, the Ennio Morricone soundtrack is good, but it does get a bit repetitive. I find after a while. I like it though because it uses that bizarre sort of hammered dulcimer type uh, yeah. noise, and it's a really it, it's quite a pretty riff that sort of uh, sometimes it matches what's going on, and other time it juxtaposes. I haven't got the musical terms, but yeah, it yeah. seems to crop up every time and. Background music alters yes. the shape of it almost exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I'm pretty sure I've done. A, I'm I'm not sure, but I'm I think that in the latest Sherlock Holmes movie, the the one guy Ritchie did, right? They either sample it or use a very similar motif right. from it, possibly because it's that dulcimer sounding noise that I just think that was the thing that I recognised from it. But no, it's an absolutely brilliant score. Yeah, um, and a brilliant film. Mm-hmm. We've mentioned this allusions to Nazism. They're kind of more than allusions, really. They've well, they're sort of they're important to the the plot, aren't they? Well, but did you think that fitted together? Because, like we're saying, it's mostly a very bawdy black comedy, but then it has that more serious streak to it, which I think we won't tell people what the very finale, the very last scene is. I thought the last scene though was brilliant, but it kind of depends on all those other things tying in together. I, mm-hmm. I was a bit worried about the taste issues. It seems quite. It, it seemed quite an interesting idea of updating it to that sort of period, especially from Dmitrik, who would have he came from the Ukraine, I think. So mm. he'd have probably had some kind of first-hand experience of uh, the Second World War, and I wonder if he was maybe looking at it from that point of view that Bluebeard needs to be vilified further, not just as a, a, a monster, like a serial killer for the sake yeah. of it, you know they, they need, it needs to be strengthened yeah. somewhat, and why not put some political background into it? Because we see what he genuinely is, <coughs> like, oh he has that wonderful line when I'd forgotten about Bridget the Feminist. Oh Christ The, the yes. feminist who hangs around in a see-through green blouse with, yeah. with no bra on Um <laughs> Actually, that was a dodgy piece of taste as well. She's spouting all this feminism, and then um, it turns out she just likes being whacked around. <laughs> Ilsa, is it? Is it? It's post-dating. Oh, it's it's a, seventy-two. I think it might. I, pre-dating. It might be. A, well, it's around the time of those Nazi exploitation yeah, movies, which we have yet to do. We've, uh, we've well, yet to go into we'll the figure world. Something we'll get something for the new year, maybe. <laughs> yes, he says she's from Austria, Hitler's home place, which is the only good thing about her. Also something that helped endear it to my heart was he has a few cronies around him sometimes who were part of the, the, the non-Nazi party, yeah. but Nazi party. And uh, <laughs> it's for, I think they're all German actors who play him, but they're all voiced by Robert Ritelli. Oh, right. He's got such a distinctive voice with all like the Bond movies and stuff. So... I really like that, but then I watched um, a clip of YouTube where he was on Barry Norman, film 88 or 89, or maybe a bit later, uh, being interviewed, and he was he was saying that in when he was working on the film Waterloo, he did 98 voices for that movie. Bloody hell. Because I was thinking, wow, four voices of all very similar characters is quite hard work, but yeah, yeah it's uh, 90, compared to 98, is nothing. Um... 
This is a shade over two hours. Was it too long for you, or no. kept your attention the it, whole time? It really kept my attention. There was some filler moments, like the horse ride, uh, mm-hmm. horse sh- show jumping sort of scene when he first meets the the singing woman is it even that was very short I, it's yeah. very short but it felt a bit filler so I'm really looking forward to when you put up the film stills for this week's show it's going to look <laughs> people well, I don't know will you be able to get anything for Heckler and Hype off the VHS no I don't know how to uh, oh. people have been advising me on how to not do to it, watch Heckler and Hype <laughs> there is some clips on YouTube apparently so I'll see what's on there but um if I but, can work something out quickly, I will. But uh, for Casanova and Bluebeard, that's going to be quite something. Definitely. So you've enjoyed your Burton stock so far. Yes, yeah. Which one are you going to be watching next? Stair- is it Staircase? The Candy, one with his- is it? He's one of the characters in that, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. Marlon Brando. and. There's that, but there's also the one with... Is it Peter O'Toole? Gosh, I the mean one the where there are two gay actors. Oh, Rex Harrison. Oh, Rex Harrison, yeah. that's it. Yeah, sorry. That, is that Staircase? Yeah, that could be. Yeah. And Hammersmith is out. Oh, Christ, We saw the clip yes, when he's at the yeah. barbecue with his chef's hat on. <laughs> There's a lot of good Burton ahead. Yeah, I can't wait for that. 2012, forget <laughs> the Olympics. The year of the Burton. <laughs> they say there is no better aphrodisiac than caviar. Aphrodisiac? They're merely fish eggs, my dear. So that's show 25, don't we? Quarter of a century. <laughs> feels like it doesn't it (laughs) yes here we are in mid-december so next time we'll be posting something up around christmas eve with any luck hopefully although i'll be in france and that will be don't spoil the illusion (laughs) we'll be sitting here unwrapping some christmas presents and pulling a few crackers yeah well i'm always pulling crackers hope you've enjoyed tonight's noteless show yeah it shows that we can do it I won't be bringing back the sound effects machine I think we've really um, exhausted that <laughs> but do keep up with us we've mentioned already um, the website has the film strips on so you can check that out and all sorts of other little bits and pieces at midnight-video.com yeah. or the best place to go might be Facebook if you can bear it but um, yeah post things up on the wall keep up to date with what's going on just search for us on Facebook and also you can follow us on Twitter at Midnight Video and if you feel compelled you can email us, more than 140 characters is always an option please um, don't leave us with nothing to read out <laughs> midnightvideo at hotmail.co.uk and will you have you done your DJing set by the time this goes up? I will yeah my my Fury Core and Neotechno debut is on the 10th so spinning the wheels of steel yeah, well, mm, <laughs> virtually. Have you got Ghostbusters ready? <laughs> no, no Ray Parker Jr., I'm afraid. <laughs> okay, thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you for our Christmas special in a couple of weeks' time. Good night. Ciao. It's like, for me, acting is like being a concubine or to be a courtesan. And the director is the, the man, woman, whoever, 
that you must please and be the lover of, be the servant of. It's wonderful to, to satisfy someone like that. No, there's no, there's no humiliation, there's only joy. I was in Cine City, which is the Italian film studios, and then a, a big black limousine drew up. And he came straight towards me, and he said, Ken, I'm known as the Italian Ken Russell. <laughs>